Welcome to The Long Box of Darkness, a podcast focusing on horror in comic book form. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me as we take a peek inside The Long Box of Darkness. Greetings listeners, welcome back to the Long Box of Darkness. This week we've got yet another classic comic from my youth that I wish to discuss. So turn your dials all the way up to terror level, because what we're going to be discussing is probably one of my favorite horror characters, at least from the 1970s and 80s. It's Marvel Comics' Ghost Rider, and the book we're talking about is specifically Ghost Rider number 70, published in July of 1982. Okay, we've got art by Bob Bediansky, and the writer on this uh, piece is Roger Stern, inker Dave Simmons, letterer Diane Albers, and colorist Bob Sharon. Uh, now, this comic has been reprinted. Um, but it's pretty hard to come by. Um, it isn't on Comixology. Um, it isn't in any collections. The Essential Ghost Rider collections that were put out a couple of years ago does not include this comic book. It only collects possibly the first 20 uh, or 30 issues of the run. So if you want to pick up this uh, particular comic, you'll have to go to a comic book store with extensive back issues in their catalog. Still, it's worth it. The art is amazing and the writing even more so. So let's get into the comic book. All right, a brief history on the Ghost Rider. Of course, uh, stunt cyclist Johnny Blaze made a pact with the Infernal Realm, and um, a demon was welded to his soul, a demon by the name of Zarathos, known as the Ghost Rider. And whenever there is um, evil acts on Earth requiring vengeance to be served, the Ghost Rider pops out of Johnny's body takes over his human form and transforms into this flaming skeleton, um, usually dressed in Johnny's biker clothes, and then commences to uh, create a hell cycle from living uh, infernal flame, which he then uh, rides much faster than any known vehicle created by man. And of course, he's got a variety of uh, interesting abilities, um, his most interesting ability is his penance stare, which he uses to punish um, evildoers. But in the early Ghost Rider comics, we're talking here about the the first series. This is actually the second series. There was a series about a Ghost Rider um, uh, who was dressed all in white, riding a white white horse, a cowboy-like figure. But this Ghost Rider we're talking about is, of course, the stunt cyclist Johnny Blaze, my favorite iteration. And... Um, in these early tales, he never actually used the pen and stare. He used his hellfire to burn the souls of evildoers directly, um, which will definitely happen in this comic. Um, it's a great scene. I can't wait to get to it. But that's a bit of a history of uh, Johnny Blaze. At this point in time, in this particular comic, Johnny is working at a carnival. 
And um, at this particular carnival, of course, there are some sideshow, um, what people call freaks. And of course, these are deformed uh, people who have no other option but to work as these um, carnival attractions. And um, the comic book's cover features a variety of these um, malformed human beings. And um, uh, rightly so, I guess, um, you uh, see a sensitive issue coming to the fore here, especially looking at the cover of Ghost Rider number 17. Now, the cover itself features the Ghost Rider in uh, sort of the spotlight and surrounded by these um, deformed um, people who are intent on seemingly attacking him. So, um, like I say, sensitive topic. Um, we, uh, we've since, I think, in the comic book industry decided that you shouldn't portray, um, you know, freaks or carnival freaks this uh, luridly or this um, blatantly because it is insensitive. But, um, you know, in horror, uh, this is uh, something that has been done since the early 1930s in film. And we'll discuss that more later, how humans are horrified by the malformed and that which um, breaks free of, of the human conception of what, what the perfect uh, shape or form should be. And, of course, that induces horror, especially when... Um, we think about the fact that that could be us, that we could be, um, but for a twist of fate, we could be one of those, or an unlucky genetic twist of fate, I should say, we could be one of those um, uh, malformed people. So anyway, this uh, issue is entitled Freaks. And um, I think Roger Stern dealt sensitively with the topic because uh, as the story progresses, you'll see there is some form of sympathy that... Uh, comes through in the writing. But to get into the story itself, um, Johnny's at this carnival, and the carnival features um, one sideshow attraction called the Monster Man. Now, he's actually called Jeremy. He's a very sweet monster. He uh, looks almost Frankenstein-like. Uh, he's um, incredibly large, probably seven foot, eight feet in height. And um, he's got these uh, twisted features with this uh, jutting lower lip, uh, this massive bump on his forehead, um, kind of uh, face similar to that of a, uh, a gorilla, actually. Okay, this, this sounds horrible, me describing it like this, but um, this is the way that he was drawn by Bob Badiansky. But he's a very uh, gentle soul, actually, and he's an artist. We see him in the first panel after we're shocked by his initial appearance. He's um, busy sketching on a sketch pad. And then he's called to work by one of the uh, carnival hands, and they're apparently packing up and moving on to the next location. So he hefts this large barrel, um, showcasing his monster strength, and old Jeremy walks and delivers the barrel. But he startles someone on his way over, um, and it turns out that it's a famous um, clown from a, a, a world-famous circus visiting his father, who's also a clown, at the uh, carnival. And this famous sideshow clown is, uh, goes by the name of um, Corky. Oh, Elliot. Elliot Frank. And his father's name is Corky. And um, Corky Frank. And he's just coming to visit his father. And then um, as he's introduced to Jeremy, 
um, and to the owner of the carnival called Ralph Quinton. He suddenly um, is startled by Johnny Blaze, uh, the ghost rider, but of, of course he's just in his human form at the moment. And he's uh, worked out a new stunt. He's riding uh, acrobatically on his handlebars by you know, pulling, pushing himself up, uh, merely holding the handlebars, and with legs up in the air, and the cycle is roaring around the carnival site. Um, obviously, Johnny's almost inhumanly skilled manipulating his stunt cycles. And then as he rounds um, the, the carnival, he sets the brakes on automatic, apparently, <laughs> if something like that's possible. And then as the motorcycle brakes, it throws him forward. He somersaults and lands on his feet. Like I say, Johnny has some mad acrobatic skills. All right, so everybody congratulates him with this new stunt, and then he also gets to meet uh, Corky the Clown's son, Elliot Frank. And then we get treated to um, Jeremy, who then um, witnesses the spectacle and sees a lady by the name of Cynthia, who he's sweet on. He has a crush on her, he gives her the notepad, and in fact the sketch that he um, had been doodling earlier is a portrait of Cynthia, which uh, is obviously very well done. Jeremy's um, very talented. But Cynthia immediately rejects his gift. She's a reporter who's been hanging around the carnival um, doing a piece for her magazine. And she's been around a couple of issues by this time. She's a very uh, fetching young woman, uh, red hair, sort of a Jean Grey type but she um, is also a bit mean-spirited. As Jeremy approaches, uh, the thought bubble that um, Cynthia you know, has says something like, oh my God, it's Beauty and the Beast all over again. So she's a little bit insensitive, and she rejects Jeremy's gift, even though he says it's nothing romantic, it's just he wants to be her friend. Then she meets Corky's son, the famous circus clown, and she comes on to him, but he rejects her because he just wants to spend time with his father. So a little bit of karma coming in there. All right, the carnival sets off um, on their trek to the next location and Elliot's accompanying his father, hanging out with his pop. Um, and we'll see where they go later on. But then the story cuts to a mansion on a privately owned island where there sits a brooding man um, in a dark uh, study. And he's got this... Uh, Ralph Quentin Carnival's flyer in his hand. The flyer advertises Johnny Blaze, and it advertises a high-wire stunt and also Jeremy as the monster man. And then he calls in his aide, this mysterious man, and the aide is called Ronaldo, and he throws the flyer at Ronaldo. He crumples up the flyer and throws it at Ronaldo, and he asks Ronaldo to acquire this monster man that... Um, features in Quentin's Carnival, and Ronaldo says oh, he'll do what he can. He'll, you know, try his best to get this monster man Jeremy to join their um, endeavor. And um, as this shadowy figure points out, uh, they have um, menagerie, or what he calls his little crew. So obviously, they want to add Jeremy to um, their collection of freaks. At this point in time, it seems like just an eccentric rich guy who collects freaks for his own amusement. 
but it turns out not to be the case later on, as we'll soon see. Now, this is where I have to drop the spoiler warning. Uh, if this comic sounds very intriguing to you and you don't want me to spoil future events, go out and try to get the comic and tune in about in, in about 10 minutes' time after I've talked about the events that will transpire because, of course, this comic book has a great story. I don't want to spoil anything for people who still want to read it. Um, all right, so with the spoiler warning out of the way, here we go. Johnny's walking around the new location of the carnival. Time has since passed, obviously, and... Um, Johnny sees an argument between Mr. Quinton, the owner of the carnival, and this self-same Ronaldo, the lackey of this mysterious man on the island. Uh, obviously, Ronaldo has since tracked down uh, the carnival, and he has made an offer for Jeremy. But since he's very callous in his negotiations and uh, almost too direct, um, he treats Jeremy like a side of beef, uh, in Ralph Quinton's words, he just wants to buy him straight away from the carnival as if he was a slave. Uh, Mr. Quentin, being an honorable old fellow, he rejects this offer made by Ronaldo, And Ronaldo doesn't want to take no for an answer, so he accosts Mr. Quentin, and, and things get physical. And Johnny sees this. He intervenes. And Johnny acts as the carnival's resident bouncer and uh, throws Ronaldo off the carnival grounds. And Ronaldo swears vengeance on Johnny manhandling him like an animal. And that very night, as the carnival winds down and everybody gets settled in to take a well-deserved rest, Ronaldo arrives on the outskirts of the carnival tents in a blue van. And as he opens the door, a shadowy, deformed creatures pour out of the van. And Ronaldo says, go, carry out your orders, let nothing stand in your way. So this is where the true horror in the comic book happens, because the way Bob Badiansky draws it is very eerie. We still don't see a lot of details, but it, it basically lo looks like living, um, twisted shadows melting out of this van. And only later on do we learn that these creatures are actually human, but they're, they come in all shapes and sizes. So these creatures silently pour into the carnival. And Johnny's going to join a poker game. Uh, but before he does, um, he uh, picks up his old riding togs, his uh, racing leathers, as he calls them, and he decides to bury them somewhere in the woods because he hasn't changed in the, into the Ghost Rider in uh, quite a while. He's intent upon locking the Ghost Rider inside um, and never letting him out, never losing control again and then these old racing leathers uh, which he wore as he was the ghost rider he decides to put them in a bag and, and get rid of them uh, during the poker game though um, the freaks pour into the tent now I call them freaks just because that is the name of their so-called crew I don't mean to be insensitive here but these um, uh, people who now serve as a type of strike force for Ronaldo, they pour into the tent and they're looking for Jeremy. They want Jeremy to join them. Now we've got creatures with four arms. We've got uh, guys who are only torsos. We've got people with massive teeth. Um, we've got uh, creatures with snake-like appendages here and um, some with large 
protruding brain matter on their heads. It's really, really scary. And um, obviously from our standpoint at this point in time, a reader's point of view, it's grotesque. So they pour into the tent and they uh, interrupt the poker game and attack Johnny. And they say that they're looking for Jeremy, but they're also looking for Johnny. They have been ordered to capture him. And Johnny fights to the best of his ability, but there are just too many of the uh, attackers and they easily overpower him. And he has the option to change into the Ghost Rider, but he refuses to let the Ghost Rider out. And before he can uh, reassess the situation, he's knocked out by the freaks and captured. Now they've torn into the carnival, ripped the place apart, and they've captured Jeremy and they take him and Johnny to the van. And then Johnny wakes up um, after about half an hour, at least that's what the narration tells us, and he's in a plush hotel suite for some reason. And standing over him as he's lying there tied up and gagged is Ronaldo and some of Ronaldo's deformed servants. Now, Ronaldo says, uh, we've, uh, we've got what we came for. We wanted Jeremy and we'll be leaving soon. But first, Mr. Blaze, I would like to repay you for your treatment of me this morning. And then he proceeds to kick the living hell out of Johnny, intending to cripple him um, because, as you might remember, he swore vengeance because of Johnny throwing him off the carnival grounds earlier that day. So Johnny's had about enough of this. He can't stand it. His ribs are breaking. He's bruised and, and battered and hurt. He can't stand more of this abuse. So he loses control and decides to let out the Ghost Rider. So we're treated to this amazing transformation scene. And I've always much preferred the transformations of Johnny into the Ghost Rider to, let's say, that of the Hulk, Bruce Banner into the Hulk. This is much better for me. It's, it's awesome. The skin melts away, kind of like in the Nick Cage movie, which we'll touch on briefly later, um, the Ghost Rider movie. The flesh melts away and revealing this burning skeleton and with this maniacal laugh, which is something that the movie didn't do much of. Um, Ghost Rider is known for his incredible, uh, evil, hellish uh, guffaw, his laugh. So Ghost Rider breaks free from the restraints easily and he gives his signature laugh. <laughs> and he says, do I now see confusion in your eyes, Ronaldo, or do I see fear? So obviously Ronaldo's scared out of his wits here and he orders the freaks to attack the Ghost Rider while he escapes. And as the, uh, the slaves of, of Ronaldo jumps on Ghost Rider, Ghost Rider starts picking them up and throwing them around the room like rag dolls strangling some of them and then he sees Johnny Blaze's bag lying next to him which they also seemed um, well they, they also took it along for some strange reason but as you might remember the Ghost Riders um, cycling leathers are in there so he quickly dresses in the cycling leathers in the Ghost Riders own words he says it is unseemly for the spirit of vengeance to be clothed in tatters so he's happy that he's got Johnny Blaze's um, riding togs on. And then he commences to, in the self-same plush hotel room, he creates his Hellfire motorcycle out of thin air, obviously. So he jumps on this motorcycle and blazes, pardon the pun, blazes down the lobby. 
uh, scaring people, uh, burning the stairs, uh, burning everything he touches. And then he accosts the desk clerk and he says, Ronaldo's party left in a hurry. Where did they go? Speak or I'll rip the tongue from your slavering mouth. And of course, this is no idle threat. Ghost Rider might very well do that. I mean, he's not a superhero. He's not even an anti-hero. When he becomes the Ghost Rider, he's pure evil and won't stop until vengeance is served, as he is the spirit of vengeance. And then the desk clerk, uh, <laughs> in a very, very pathetic way, uh, imparts the information. He says that uh, Ronaldo's headed for a private airport, um, you know, but it's closed this time of night. Um, you might still catch him. And then in a very tiny voice, he says, please don't hurt me. And then the Ghost Rider jumps on his hell cycle, and um, here we get uh, a mention of one of his monikers, his um, nicknames. As you know, comic book characters like Superman and Batman, they often have, or, or Spider-Man, they often often have extra nicknames that narrators in comic books give them. Batman being the Cape Crusader or the Dark Knight, Superman being the Man of Steel or um, the Metropolis Marvel. Uh, Ghost Rider here is known as the Brimstone Biker. Or the spirit of vengeance. So they say here, the brimstone biker rockets out of the hotel lobby, scorching the grasses of the well-kept lawn of the hotel. As he uh, shifts into gears, no man-made motorcycle has ever possessed. So Ghost Rider is happy that the chase is on. He says the chase makes vengeance so much sweeter. And then we see Ronaldo's van approaching the airport. Um, unfortunately... Ghost Rider has gotten there first and he blocks the van and then melts the asphalt beneath the van so that the van um, has no choice but to stop and Ronaldo flees. Ghost Rider chases him down, rides him down and grabs him by the neck and pulls him back towards where the malformed slaves, including Jeremy, are waiting at the van. So the Ghost Rider has retrieved Ronaldo and he lets his Hellfire motorcycle just fade away into nothingness. And he says he must teach these freaks a lesson. Even though they are not worthy of his vengeance, they must learn. And then he commences to pick Ronaldo up above his head. And he gives a bit of a rundown of his true power. He says that you have seen the power of my flame to burn, to melt physical substance. But that is the least of the Ghost Rider's power. For my hellfire is that of the fiery pits. If I so desire, mine is the power to char a man's soul without singeing a hair on his head. And this I so desire. And then he commences to burn Ronaldo, but without actually burning his flesh, he literally burns his soul. And the agony is so great that Ronaldo's begging for mercy and Ghost Rider dumps him on the ground and as Ronaldo says, no more, no more, please have mercy. Ghost Rider laughs and says, mercy, ha, 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 ha. There is no mercy when vengeance is done. And then he fades away, um, leaving Johnny Blaze in control of his own body once more. So then Johnny has understandably freaked out the freaks. Um, but it turns out that Jeremy um, has now become, in this very short span of time, their leader. And he says that, Johnny, you know, we understand you're just like us. You're a freak, just like us. And there's no place for you in the real world. And, and we're, we're afraid of you, but we also understand. And then 
uh, Johnny asks them, what are you going to do now? And Jeremy says, well, they're going to take Ronaldo to this island and they're going to overthrow this um, uh, businessman who, who keeps acquiring them and they're going to take the island um, as their own and they're going to live there. And Ronaldo and his boss will be the freaks there because uh, Jeremy and his brothers, as he calls them, will be in the majority. And uh, Jeremy and yeah, his newfound family get in the plane and fly off towards the island, leaving Johnny to look up after the plane and saying, um, or thinking, good luck to you, my friend. It must be mighty nice to have a place to go where you, have, where you don't have to hide what you are, a place where you can be normal. And uh, that's the end of this issue. So at first it seems that uh, writer Roger Stern is a little bit uh, insensitive when he deals with the concept of these malformed uh, carnies and freaks. But actually at the end he shows that it's a more... Uh, it's a, it's a comic book with a bit more depth to it when they talk about um, how these people are outsiders and how this the events of this um, story has, in fact, given them a chance to find a place where they could, what they could truly call home. And uh, Ghost Rider has helped them in that respect. Even though throughout the comic book, as the Ghost Rider battles um, these deformities, he calls them by hideous names. He calls them at one point in time uh, twisted ones and um, heed me, you deformed, malformed creatures. <laughs> so obviously Ghost Rider doesn't care a lick about um, uh, being you know, politically correct. <laughs> but um, still, a uh, great comic book. Um, I read it to bits when I was a kid, and this is the actual issue that I still have. Um, and it's in terrible condition, but I love it. And I probably reread it every couple of years or so. Um, it's still one of my favorites. So that was my very first Ghost Rider comic, and the very first time I discussed this Ghost Rider on the show. And we'll do more Ghost Rider comics in the future. Okay, when we come back um, after the break, I'll talk a bit about my history with this comic and about the human fear of deformity. Now, are we? You're going down. I don't think so. When I was about seven years old, um, I used to be dropped off at my grandma's house by my mom whenever she had a school function. And uh, one afternoon, I remember it very well, it must have been around 1984. Um, I was uh, taken to my grandma's house again. Now, normally I was bored out of my mind over there. Luckily, this time around, my mom decided to... She had the time, so she stopped at a corner store on the way. Now, this was in the uh, little town next to the town where I grew up in, in a town called Krugerstorp. And um, 
Uh, there were lots of corner stores in this town and lots of comics to be had in those spinner racks. And she took me to one with a particularly full spinner rack. Um, and she gave me the choice of, of buying a couple of comics. Now, I can't remember every single issue that I bought there, but I can distinctly remember this issue of The Ghost Rider because the cover was so disturbing. And um, it really affected me. I think I had a, a bit of nightmares. Yeah, quite a few nightmares after uh, reading this comic just because of the images that are presented uh, to the reader, especially young children at the time. So um, these uh, deformed uh, people being drawn by Bob Budiansky um, in such detailed fashion, you know, that really, really messed me up for a while as a kid. And um, I think um, I read this comic cover to cover multiple times during that first day sitting at my grandma's kitchen table where I was supposed to be doing homework. I can't remember if I finished the homework first or later, or I remember as my grandma was very lenient. She would let me do whatever I want, basically, when I got there. Spoiled me, really. So I read this comic and I reread it and I read the others too. I really can't remember the, the, the other comic books that I had picked up, but this one stands out. Um, and I remember thinking, gee, what I just read is something that I've actually never read before in a comic in terms of um, how they presented uh, these figures. And, yeah, for, for a while after that, I was very upset whenever I saw movies depicting the deformed. Um, and it still uh, affects me to this day, even though I'm, I've built up a bit of a resistance to it now. So the Ghost Rider, uh, that was the very first Ghost Rider comic I ever picked up is Ghost Rider number 70, this one. And then, of course, I went back and found um, other back issues in flea markets, and I picked up a nearly complete run. I could never get my hands on the first five, um, but I've since picked that up in terms of the uh, Ghost Rider Essential Collections in Marvel. But I had a, a complete run up until Ghost Rider number... 77 at least uh, missing a few issues here and there I've never actually completed it now that I think about it I've got all these old comics here and I love to reread them the Ghost Rider's always been one of my favorite supernatural characters probably right after Swamp Thing I really love the concept so um, one of the things I remember as a kid was seeing the Ghost Rider laugh and I used to mimic his laugh um, in my grandma's kitchen and she thought I must have been insane and um, this made me think there's, there's a couple of uh, characters in comics who support this distinctive uh, laugh the Joker obviously being one of them uh, the Shadow uh, the Creeper they all have this laugh that freaks out their enemies and the evildoers that they're going to be punishing but the Ghost Rider is probably the best of the bunch for me, at least in my head, the laugh that echoes around my skull whenever I see him on the page is the laughter of the devil, the laughter of hell. And so nothing's more frightening than that, right? Uh, now, this issue drew heavily on influences from movies, of course, that came before it. Since this issue was published in 1982, I'm sure Bob Budiansky and Roger Stern saw movies like um, Jeffrey Conrad's is, um, The Sentinel, directed by Michael Winner, which came out in 1977. Um, 
five years uh, or so prior to this. And then they must have also been aware of movies such as um, the very early um, 1932 movie Freaks, uh, which was directed by Todd Browning. I think that movie Freaks probably ruined uh, Todd Browning's career because of the insensitive portrayal of these um, circus sideshow attractions, these people who were essentially put in this demeaning role. Now, yeah, Todd Browning's Freaks, from what I've read uh, in the past, I remember that there was like um, a cut um, to the movie. They were, it was supposed to be 90 minutes long, but then with all the cuts being done, it ended up being only 64 minutes long since um, the censors decreed that most of the scenes were way too upsetting to viewers to ever be screened. And apparently that original cut has been lost. It doesn't exist anymore. So, um, of course, in Freaks, uh, this uh, woman who tries to steal the money of this uh, rich little person, back then they called them midgets, that's the incorrect term, um, so this little person, um, and then, you know, she does in fact murder him and his friends, the sideshow attractions, exact a horrible revenge on her by um, this this terrible scene um, where she is stalked by them in the rain as they crawl after her in the mud and she's stuck underneath the wagon wheels of this one uh, carnival um trailer and then they capture her and they you know uh, perform some amateur surgery and turns her into this bird woman so she becomes a sideshow attraction herself wow that's so disturbing it kind of uh, reminds me a little bit of uh, the novel by china mirville a british author published in 2000 i think uh, called perdido street station or perdido street station not sure how you pronounce that. It's actually one of my favorite uh, weird fiction novels. It has a heavy dose of horror. And um, in this novel, there are people called the Remade. And uh, it's um, a punishment system invoked by the city of New Crobazon, which features heavily in the novel, where criminals are punished by being subjected to this surgery called remaking, where they graft animal parts onto them, uh, while uh, removing other uh, limbs or they even turn them into half cyborg machine type creatures but without a suitable function um, it's just a punishment so these appendages that are grafted onto them uh, deform them but cannot be used by by them so they have no other option but to become these circus freaks these sideshow attractions so then um to briefly discuss uh, Michael Winner's movie The Sentinel, The Sentinel featured an end scene where the denizens of hell pour into this apartment building led by Satan himself, and they're all these deformed humans. And Michael Winner actually used real-life circus um, performers who sported these malformed limbs and um, who were actually uh, deformed in real life to act as extras in his movie. And that really disturbed a lot of uh, the censors and the viewers and me. <laughs> when I saw it the first time, I was completely freaked out, out of my mind, seeing this ending scene with all these uh, deformed people. Now, of course, this is wrong. Uh, 
um, I've desensitized myself. When I see them in real life, I'm not um, really affected by it. But when I observe uh, movie scenes, putting them into these horrid roles, I'm suitably affected. The horror really comes through strongly because of the choices these directors make in the films. And that's exactly what happens in this Ghost Rider comic. Um, the way that uh, the, the creators portray these malformed creatures is to, in fact, invoke horror in the reader. And it succeeds brilliantly in that. And, um, yeah, disturbingly so. I think there was also an American Horror Story, the TV show, American Horror Story season, I think it was season four, uh, called Freak Show, which uh, dealt with this form of horror. And I think the human mind has always had a subconscious um, notion of what the perfect human form should be. Um, and if that form is distorted in some way, either by you know an optical illusion or a mirror effect or by drawings or art, it really, really grates on our minds. It really uh, disturbs us because that's not our conception of how the world should be. And whenever something like that intrudes upon our nice little corner of reality, uh, we're shaken to our cores, and that's exactly what um, the concept of the deformed in horror, the monstrous other, um, but in this respect, the human monstrous other um, does, and it invokes an extreme sense of horror. So that's my uh, two cents on this matter of deformity in comics and what the Ghost Rider deals with here. Um, I guess I could have touched on the concept of possession, but, um, you know, The Exorcist uh, is not exactly a movie that you reference in terms of uh, The Ghost Rider, because in The Ghost Rider, it's, it's, it's a different kind of possession. It's a more um, uh, hellish possession, but it's under control. You know, Johnny Blaze uses the Ghost Rider to exact vengeance. So it's a... Um, but in, of course, The Exorcist, it's a totally different form of possession, child possession. So you can't really reference movies like The Omen or, you know, uh, a movie dealing directly with possession like The Exorcist in this light because um, Ghost Rider is much different. I think the concept of deformity in this issue is what, what really invokes the horror more so than the actual possession of Johnny Blaze by the Ghost Rider. All right, we're going to take another bit of a, a break, and then when we come back, uh, we'll look at some horror trivia. You're still beating yourself up about that night. We survived. What do you remember about the Fifth Street attack? I was sure you were dead. Because I was dead. I was thrown from the car. Then I hit the street. Then there's nothing. It's just darkness. And then I heard a voice. Did I want to punish those who hurt my brother? Did I want to avenge my own death? Yes. That's the deal I made. 
to go after those who spilled innocent blood. The novice reborn. Ghost Rider. There are stories in prison. Whispers of a demon. They say when a rider burns you, he burns your soul. The Dark Hold. The Book of Sins. Lucy Bob. The weapon. In the form of a person. No, she's after it. You want to know what's connecting these things? I think it might be me. My uncle is Eli Morrow. You're his nephew, Gabriel. Like the angel. No. I'm the other one. The thing inside me. Craves vengeance. You don't get to decide who deserves to die. I'm not the one who decides. Welcome back, listeners. For our trivia segment this week, we're focusing on horror comics way back when, in the heyday of horror, at least the heyday of horror comics. We're talking here about the late 1940s, and this has nothing to do with the history of horror comics segment. This is all about some interesting trivia that inspired the horror comic boom that EC Comics created in the early 1950s. And we're talking here specifically about William Gaines and Al Feldstein. Of course, Gaines, who had inherited the company from his father, the comic book company, uh, decided to publish uh, teen romance comics at first, as well as some war comics. But then that genre went nowhere and it was fading fast, so he decided to publish horror comics. But where did these horror comics ideas come from? That's what we're looking at in our trivia segment this week. Apparently, as it turns out, according to essayist and horror comic specialist Mike Howlett. Um, Feldstein and Gaines were friends. After Gaines brought him on uh, to be an artist and uh, writer at EC, um, they hit it off and they decided together to do horror comics because they were both fans of old radio shows, specifically radio shows called Lights Out, and The Witch's Tale. Now, The Witch's Tale is quite interesting because it featured a narrator, a horror host, so to speak, which is what the early and later even horror comic anthologies were famous for, a horror host. And this horror host was a cackling old witch. Uh, Still, this inspired Gaines and Feldstein, and they decided to uh, buck the trend not go with the teen romance and failing war comics that was on the stands, that were on the stands, but they decided to rather try something new. And at that time, remember, the horror comic genre had not hit it off yet. But when Gaines and Feldstein put their heads together and they came up with the EC horror line, um, which back then was actually called uh, Crime Patrol and War Against Crime, that was the names of the comics they first tried the horror genre in. Uh, names that almost had nothing to do with horror per se. Um, It was a hit in a major way. So they were inspired by these old radio shows, Lights Out and The Witch's Tale, to create the EC horror comics that 
we all know and love. And that's our bit of trivia for this week. Old radio shows inspired the EC horror comics. Unlike the Superman comics from the late 1930s who inspired radio shows. This is radio shows inspiring comics. Very, very interesting. All right. Of course, our next segment is our ever-popular History of Horror segment. Uh, that's right. Um, thank you, oh disembodied spirit voice. Um, it's been a while since I've spoken to you. Um, how have you been? Just fine, thank you, Herman. Yourself? Can't complain, I hope. Yeah, that's right. I, I refuse to complain. Everything's been fine. Um, had a bout of laryngitis for a while. That's why the show's a little bit late. But, you know, I'm all better now. So, what about you? How are the wife and kids? They were delicious. Thank you for asking. Um, well, okay. Well, um, we'll hear more from the disembodied voice later on, listeners. Let's get into our next History of Horror segment. When we last uh, left off, we were talking about the EC Horror Comics. And, of course, we were just getting to the sad, dreary part of the witch hunts, as I like to call them, and most people like to call them, <laughs> um, where a psychologist by the name of Dr. Dr. Frederick Wortham published a, a book called Seduction of the Innocent, um, in which he directly blamed comic books for juvenile delinquency. So, um, of course, this was disproved much later on by numerous other esteemed psychologists and so on. And it turned out that what, in fact, caused juvenile delinquency was poverty and um, children coming from broken homes and familial problems and stuff like that, social disorders of the time, but not comic books. In fact, comic books provided a sort of catharsis for people to... Um, experience these horrors that everyone was so curious about vicariously through the eyes of fictional characters and fictional settings and so forth. So obviously um, a lot of people called Frederick Wortham out on it, out on it but there were hearings and the hearings um, basically resulted in William Gaines and his company EC Comics being raked over the coals um, and it was such a terrible experience that the comic book companies that published horror up until that time immediately decided to stop that because there were even some, uh, you know, burning ceremonies where they burned comic books all across um, the States. It was that bad. So to save face and to obviously, uh, they bucked under the pressure, the comic book companies such as EC decided to give up publishing horror comics and um, the Senate or um, the subcommittee that they um, that they created to police these comic books, they drafted a general kind of standard or general standards, which would then become the comic book code authority, the comics code authority. And um, because of all of these um, standards, a lot of comic books had to sort of be very creative with their storytelling from then on, even superhero comics, because it wasn't just horror comics that um, Frederick Wortham had focused on. It was definitely uh, superhero comics as well, plus a host of others. And um, all uh, imagery 
were, was studied and criticized and blamed for the problems of the age, at least the, the problems of the youth at that time. So uh, I'll read a bit of you, uh, for you of the standards, the general standards included in the Comics Code Authority that all comic books had to adhere to if they wanted to be published back then. Uh, number one, no comics magazine shall use the word horror or terror in its title. Two, all scenes of horror, excessive bloodshed, gory or gruesome crimes, depravity, lust, sadism, masochism shall not be permitted. Three, all lurid, unsavory, gruesome illustrations shall be eliminated. Number four, inclusion of stories dealing with evil shall be used or shall be published only where the intent is to illustrate a moral issue and in no case shall evil be presented alluringly nor to, as to injure the sensibilities of the reader. Number five, scenes dealing with or instruments associated with walking dead, torture, vampires and vampirism, ghouls, cannibalism and werewolfism, <laughs> werewolfism, whoa, that's a new one, are prohibited. So obviously this included most of EC's catalog. Everything had to go. And that was the fall of EC Comics. However, they survived in the form of their magazine section, which published Mad Magazine. And um, that's what, uh, obviously, William Gaines focused on after all of his horror titles had been cancelled. So, a sad day for comics, and it left you wondering what, what could have happened. But I'm of the, of the mind that, you know, a lot of creativity came out of the Comics, comics Code Authority. Unwitting creativity, but... Um, creativity nonetheless because the writers had to find ways around difficult problems for instance in the Silver Age superhero comics they had to make it quite interesting and non-violent and the stories often took wacky and unexpected turns it wasn't just a done in one of you know good fighting evil and good winning by punching out evil so Silver Age stories always appealed to me but as a horror fan there were precious few horror comics from the uh, late 50s to um, early 1970s. But what was there to fill the need for horror during that almost forgotten decade, um, during that limbo of horror comics publishing? Well, there were the monster mags, the monster magazines, the horror magazines. We're talking here about famous monsters of Filmland, Eerie Magazine, Creepy Magazine, published by Warren Publishing. We had Vampirella. Great stuff. So when we come back for our History of Horror segment, we'll be looking at those magazines, and that will take us straight through the 60s and on into the 70s. All right. We'll take another small uh, break, and then we'll be back with our recommendation uh, segment. Unfortunately, Aaron can't make it this week. So if you're wondering what happened to the Erin segment, Erin's off traveling again. That's right, she's a regular little globe trotter. And um, while she's traveling around, I gave her a list of comic books to, for her to pick up. You know, if she happens upon any comic book stores in her travels. <laughs> Stuff that I need, you know. And she might as well prove herself useful. So when she comes back, she'll regale us with her horrific travel tales and also with the stuff she brought back the scratch, as I like to call it. All right, that's it for our History of Horror segment. 
Berman's History of Horror. We'll be back again, hopefully next week, with a look at the Monster Mags, this disembodied spirit's favorite era of comic book horror. Alright, for our final segment, I'm going to leave you with some recommendations, listeners. And I'm going to do something very predictable. I'm going to recommend some Ghost Rider comics. That's right. But never fear, there's also something I read recently that I'm going to mention at the end of the recommendation segment. So, to recommend the Ghost Riders first, if you can get your hands on Ghost Rider, the Danny Ketch Classics, Volume 1 and Volume 2, it would make your life so much better. Unfortunately, those are hard to come by. They're out of stock on Amazon, and you might be able to nab them on eBay, though, for not too expensive a price. And also, if you go back issue bin diving, you'll pick them all up as back issues. Um, they shouldn't be hard to find. Still, there isn't a nice new pristine collection out chronicling that stuff, and that's also great. That's when Johnny Blaze... Um, had given up the mantle of the ghost, ghost Rider with uh, some amount of relief, and Danny Ketch had taken on the mantle of our uh, ever-loving Flaming Skull. So another great Ghost Rider collection would be, I'm not going to unfortunately recommend the Rob Williams and Daniel Way Ghost Rider. Um, I read it, but I wasn't a big fan. They were okay. You know, but I make it a point to only recommend things that I really thought were absolutely brilliant on the show. So try the Danny Kitch stuff. Ghost Rider, um, the Danny Kitch collection, when, when Ghost Rider was a young man known as Danny. All right, so um, another great Ghost Rider comic is a more recent one done by Philippe Smith um, on writing duties and Trad Moore as the artist. You might know Trad Moore from comics such as The Strange Talent of Luther Strode, uh, hyper-violent, uh, ultra-gory, uh, very cool comic that has been put out recently by Image Comics within the last four years. I enjoyed that series immensely. In fact, Luther Strode, the complete collection, is out now at the moment. You can pick that up. Um, it's uh, roughly about 30, between 30 and 40 bucks, though, so it's very expensive, but beautiful, beautiful book. So to get back to this Ghost Rider recommendation, though, um, Trad Moore, the artist on uh, Luther Strode, did a, an amazing um, five issues on Ghost Rider. Um, it's called The All-New Ghost Rider, um, published by Marvel in two, 2014. And it features another new Ghost Rider. But this time, this young man, um, called Jaime Reese, is uh, in a car. That's right. The car itself is possessed. Think Stephen King's Christine. And um, the car, though, uh, containing a benevolent ghost, transforms uh, Reese into the new ghost rider. So whenever he climbs into the car, he becomes the new ghost rider and he's imbued with all the powers of the original Danny Blaze, uh, Johnny Blaze ghost, ghost rider. He's got the super strength. He's got the chain. He's got the, the flame powers. Oh, it's amazing. 
So I would hardly recommend that comic. And plus, the villain in the first arc is Mr. Hyde. The Marvel Mr. Hyde, of course. <laughs> but this hulking, overly muscular supervillain who relies on this um, serum to transform him into the monstrous Mr. Hyde. So it's a great comic book. You have to pick that up if you're a Ghost Rider fan. Well, I guess if you are a Ghost Rider fan, you might have read all of these things already. All right, now we get to the last recommendation that I have for you listeners. It's a comic book I recently picked up on one of the Thanksgiving sales, the Black Friday, Cyber Monday sales um, on Comixology. So it's a dig- digital comic. Um, it's also a little bit hard to find if you're looking for the actual physical copy. Um, and it's by Humanoid Press. That's right, the popular humanoids that have been reprinting Alejandro Jodorowsky and Mobius's stuff um, and the heavy metal collections from uh, France's French comic underground from the 1970s. And man, French people really know how to do good comics. I must say the art on this series is amazing. And the series is called Carthago. That's right. That's the name. I recently picked it up on the sale, but um, it was too... 99 per volume, $2.99, but that sale has since come and gone. So I apologize, I couldn't recommend this um, earlier. Uh, but as I said, I was laid out with a bit of laryngitis for a while there. Anyway, the point is, this thing is amazing. You have to pick it up, you have to read it. Uh, what it's about is um, an underwater... A drilling company, a fuel company, similar to, let's say, let's say ExxonMobil, they're drilling in the ocean and they discover this hidden pocket of prehistoric life in this volcanic bubble, um, you know, many fathoms below. And um, obviously there's some plesiosaurs and other kind of um, uh, ancient reptiles, but the fiercest and most dangerous creature that they encounter in this um, underwater lava dome is in fact a megalodon shark. And as it turns out later on, not just one, but many. And that's not giving away the storyline here. That starts right from the bat. You know exactly what these underwater explorers who who are drilling for fuel are facing when two of them are brutally killed within the first few pages by this giant megalodon shark. So it's, it's kind of um, a horror comic. I would definitely describe it as horror. There's many, many horrific scenes, um, fear-inducing panels, uh, bloody kills. And um, then there's also a mystery surrounding this girl who seems to have some affinity with water. And um, as it turns out, a link to ancient Atlantis. It's a great comic. You have to put it, pick it up. Carthago. Um, by Humanoids Press, and um, I think the sale only finished yesterday. So, um, if you want to pick up uh, the volumes on the regular, it would be six dollars uh, ninety-nine for um, one volume. And to the best of my um, knowledge, there's been five volumes published at the moment. They've also got another uh, ancillary series called Carthago Adventures where the main characters, um, sort of a prequel to the main Carthago comic, where the um, protagonists go after these cryptids, um, which have nothing to do with the Megalodon shark. And the writer on this uh, brilliant comic is a guy by the name of Christoph Beck, 
and um, the artists are Eric Henino and Milan Jovanovic. I hardly recommend that you pick this up. Please do so if you're a fan of great art, great storytelling, and of eerie, sinister happenings, um, terrifying portents beneath the waves. Then you got to pick this up. All right, that's it for my recommendations this week, and we're done with the show as well. But I'll be back again probably later on in the week. Um, because I'm trying to put out more shows now since I missed two weeks. I apologize for that, listeners. My voice is back. That means I'm back. And I'll put out some bonus shows to make up for lost time. But again, thanks for listening. And if you want to leave any feedback, you can do so at darklongbox at gmail.com. You can also reach me on Twitter at darklongbox. Or you can follow the blog that I'm... Um, haphazardly writing about horror in comic book form called The Long Box of Darkness. That is at www.longboxofdarkness.com. Please check that out and leave me some feedback. And if you want to send any audio commentary or audio feedback, please do so. Um, Post an mp3 directly to darklongbox at gmail.com and I'd gladly play that on the show. Well, that's it for me, listeners. Until we meet again and take another peek into the long box of darkness. Good night and pleasant screams. (laughs) 